Would you pray with, together with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, in our worship we have declared our desire of heart to worship you. And Lord, it is uh, an act of passion that is an obedience to your claim in our lives that we would sense your presence and that uh, in sensing your presence we, we might, might, might be drawn close and, and, and Lord, sense the, the encouragement of life itself. And yet it's even more than that, Lord, for we are to worship you heart, soul, body, and mind. And I pray that even as we have declared ourselves obedient to you with, with the passion of our heart, that, Lord, we might show ourselves now to be obedient to, to you with the focus of our minds as well. That we might be open to the working of your Holy Spirit so that your word might dwell within us and that, Lord, we might sense the direction that you have for us in our lives so that our worship might not only be for this moment, but that our worship, Lord, might extend into our days, into today and into tomorrow and into all the week and in the weeks to come, that, Lord, we might be your people, the the men and women you've made us to be from the very beginning, and all in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Before I start, I, I, I need to get at least one thing out, it's something I can't hold to myself. Uh, I, I belong to a, a special, a very unique club that actually began about 34 years ago uh, when my first son was born, and then my second son was born, and we call ourselves the Shrag's Men, Shrag Men's Club, and uh, we, we, we have golf tournaments periodically. And uh, last night, in the middle of the night, I got a telephone call from my oldest son, and we have a new member to our club, uh, a, a little baby uh, boy, I have a grandson, finally. Uh, he's joining three little granddaughters, uh, and he has no idea what he's going to get himself into. So I'm going to preach this sermon, and after the sermon's over with, I've got an appointment uh, down in the hospital in Richmond to meet the newest member of my club and initiate him uh, into the ways of the Shrag Men's Club. I, I just thought I had share that with you to explain maybe the slappy smile on my face there. So, yeah. Yeah. He's healthy, the mother's healthy, and I'm, I'm just, you know, thanks be to God. Now I'm going to invite you to return with me now to the study that we have been doing now through the book of, uh, of the Gospel of, uh, of Luke. And if you turn to chapter 11, we're going to be continuing in that study. And you may remember that uh, two weeks ago we were looking at Luke's Gospel, and I, and I pointed out that when Jesus said something in chapter 11, verse 23... He, he, he really made a challenge. There in Luke 11, chapter 11, verse 23, he said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And when he said that, uh, Jesus made it clear that he is not about to settle for friendship. I, I, I made that comment uh, uh, in this sermon. Instead, Jesus is not looking for friendship. He's looking for nothing less than wholehearted surrender. Uh, That's what his greatest interest is, which to some may actually sound fairly harsh. I remember when I I mentioned that in one of the classes at the seminary, uh, uh, one of the students took real exception to me. And afterwards, after the class, he came up and he said, "Uh, how can we even talk then and sing about Jesus being a friend of sinners if he has no interest in friendship. 
that, that, that he's not going to settle just for friendship. Well, that's a very good point. A, a, a lot of people have this image of God as being some sort of gloomy, stern, demanding, divine dictator, but then maybe transfer, uh, tempted to transfer that image that they have of this gloomy God onto to Jesus. So when they hear those words, they say, well, that's just what I thought. But the fact is, Jesus Christ is anything but unfriendly. There is, there, there, there is a distinction that needs to be made between his actions and his intentions. And his actions reflect everything that was promised and spoken of in John chapter 3, verse 16. That the only begotten Son became because of the love of God. And love itself is his ultimate expression. And his actions are forever kind. But keep in mind that the intentions of his life are, as the goal of the entire gospel has already been stated, to seek and to save the lost and to rescue humanity, you and me, from our sins. He did not come simply to pat us on the head as we go by on our way to death. For God so loved the world, we read, that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. He is friendly. Oh, he is. But even more than that, he is also Savior. And he will not settle just for friendship. What he is looking for is a relationship with you, a relationship called discipleship. And that you and I would belong to him, be guided by him, be animated by him, both now and forevermore. Now, if, if, if there were any need to prove this, we find that right away in our passage this morning. Some of you may wonder why I didn't have this verse when I was preaching the last time. I want to start with it this time. Luke chapter 11, and what do we read right away in verse 27? While he was speaking... <clears throat> A woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Now you have to understand where this is coming from. Jesus had vanquished a demon in verse 14, and then he had vanquished his critics in verse 26, and a powerful display uh, just kind of prompted the applause of the crowd. Even today, speechwriters for politicians work hard to create such moments where there, there is a pause for an applause. And, and here, one voice then speaks out of the crowd in that pregnant moment of applause, and, and she just can't hold herself back. She is so struck by the, by the wisdom and the depth of Jesus' character that, that her enthusiasm was just too much. And so the words just burst right out of her heart and through her lips and out into the crowd. Blessed are you, or better yet, blessed is your mother. I wish I had a son just like you. <laughs> That's kind of what she's saying, is it not? Now, don't make, I, I don't want to make too much of the theology, or some have actually made this verse something about a sign of worship for Mary, the mother of Jesus. Listen, any number of voices could have broken out of that crowd, and each one of them would have had their own special blessing upon Jesus. You know, uh, Blessed is your father, I wish I had a son just like you. Or, blessed are your brothers and sisters, I wish mine were like you. <laughs> uh, you, you get the idea that she's 
She, she's, she's taken it personally. And this just happened to be her blessing. And it's an understandable expression of, of affection and adoration that Jesus gently accepts but then turns around back to her. Look at the response in verse 22. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You see, if Jesus was just looking for admirers, it would have been very different. When he heard those words coming from this woman, he might have said to himself, or said to the crowd, thank you very much, and said to her, thank you very much, and then would have turned to one of his disciples and said, add her to our mailing list, please. But notice, he's not interested in collecting compliments from the crowd. In fact, every disciple of Jesus, this is a fact, every disciple of Jesus Christ has to remember. Earlier in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus delivered the warning, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. (laughs) Compliments are nice, but that's not the goal. Either for Jesus or for us, as we carry the great commission to make disciples of all nations into our world. How is that done? Where is the blessing? The truly blessed, according to Jesus, are those who hear the word of God and choose of their own accord to obey what they hear. Living a decisive and a strategic life that is guided and directed in obedience to Jesus Christ. And what does this obedience, or as I have it on your outline, discipleship mean? This blessing from Jesus isn't locked in the moment. It is an invitation, actually, that transcends time. We have the Word of God in front of us today. 2,000 years out from this moment in Luke, enough of God's Word to know what it means to obey Jesus. And in verse 29, Jesus unlocks the moment by looking back into time where Jesus' invitation was met with a type of obedience and blessing that really does make for obedient discipleship. Look at verse 29, the first of those events. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asked for miraculous signs, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Ah, For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. I want you to pause for just a moment as you you think of that. The crowds are increasing, and they need to know that for Jesus, this is not a matter of celebrity, uh, but of, 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 of their discipleship. Not of his celebrity, but their discipleship. They may have come uh, look, not looking for a savior, they may have come, in fact, looking for a stunt man, someone who could make them go wow with signs and wonders. But here, Jesus fixes the focus on the truth. Signs and wonders really can serve as smoke screens to that truth. What really matters is the sign of Jonah. <laughs> now, what is the sign of Jonah? You may ask yourself. Well, if you don't know the story, you'll find it in the Old Testament book by that name, Jonah, uh, where we have uh, Jonah called by God to bring a message of salvation to the people of Nineveh, who decided instead to run away. That's what Jonah did. The fact is, you know the story, you can't run away from God. And, and, as the, story of, and the story of his sign came when he was then uh, 
chased by God with a, with a storm at sea, and the rest of the sailors threw him overboard in the midst of a hurricane and gave him up for dead, and only to find that he was swallowed by a whale and then carried for three days back to shore where that whale regurgitated him. Isn't that a nice way to say hurled him up on the shore? Now, rabbinic tradition, this is a fascinating thing to note, describes the condition that Jonah was found on, on that beach, his condition as the sign of Jonah. The digestive acids of the whale had mottled his flesh, and people were stunned at the sight as much as they were of his, the story. They, were, they looked at him and they, they saw him, the sign of Jonah, the, the, the picture of a guy who had been in the belly of the whale. And, and, and they, they were moved by his appearance as much as they were of his story and in obedience when he delivered the word of God to the people. The people of Nineveh repented of their sins and they turned to God and they were saved. The sign of Jonah was a vivid illustration of the picture of death. A picture of death, burial, and resurrection that only punctuated the message and the gift of salvation itself. And if you put your finger here at the end of verse 29 and drop your eye down to verse 32, you will find that while the story of Jonah was something, there was something even greater to be found in Jesus. See what he says there? That the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they... They repented at the preaching of Jonah, but now one who is greater than Jonah is here among you. Some may have a note in your Bible next to the word one as one greater, and you will see that in the original. It should be probably translated as something greater, not someone greater. You see, he he is speaking of a sign that belongs to Jesus Christ. For Jonah, it was a kind of death. When he was thrown overboard, and it was a kind of death. And when he was swallowed by the whale, it was a kind of burial. And when he was regurgitated onto the beach, it was a kind of resurrection. But with Jesus, going to the cross would in fact be a real death. And being laid in the grave would be a real burial. And being broken out of the tomb would be a real resurrection, and he would do all of that in reality to save your soul. That's the truth. And they, this crowd that were listening, and then would see these events, would not, they were not to settle for anything less when it came to Jesus. And nor should you. They were, they were not to look for some sort of electric light parade and then wander off into the night, nor should we. Instead, we are invited to look at the resurrected Lord so that we might bow before him, and this is the truth that sets you free. And to do that requires an honest heart. Look again at verse 31 and verse 32, and you will find what it means to have an honest heart. There we read this 
might be a curious story, but I'll explain it to you. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment, along with those men of Nineveh, bring conviction to our hearts. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one who is greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will stand up a judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one is greater than Jonah is here. Again, it may sound confusing. Jesus had already brought the crowd up to speed with the story of Jonah. Now he throws in the Queen of Sheba. I love saying that. Queen of Sheba. Just a little aside, I had, I had a, a, a wedding of one of my students a couple of years ago. His name was Dino, and his uh, fiancée, uh, wife, her name is Sheba. I had the hardest time at the wedding. Do you, Dino, take Sheba? <laughs> I, just, I, 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 I had to it really kind of stop myself. For that. But, but, but this Queen of the South, I don't know why I shared that with you. Um, but, 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 you know, th- this Queen of the South is the Queen of Sheba. Uh, so let me explain. The story of the Queen of Sheba is found in 1 Kings chapter 10, where this Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, uh, has heard of King Solomon and, uh, as King David's son, as being the one who God gave the gift of intense wisdom, greater wisdom than any man had ever had. The one who would be called the wisest man alive. The one who, who wrote the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And, 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 the, and the queen had heard that his was a wisdom from God. And, and even though her kingdom was on the edge of civilization, she went ahead and she traveled all the way to Jerusalem. And the result in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9, we read, She praised God and found blessing. That's what it says in 1 Kings. Kings about her experience. She praised God and she found blessing. Notice she praised God. She didn't praise Solomon. Nor did she praise Solomon's mother. (laughs) Her praise was directly focused on God. And back back in Luke 11, when Jesus referred to the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, he made his audience think. Here are two examples from their own history Examples of Gentiles, people you would never expect to have anything to do with God, being quick enough to recognize the truth of God by his actions. And then respond to him with soft hearts and honest repentance and an eager desire to be blessed by the presence of God, to belong to him and to obey his will. And the indication here from Jesus is that on the day of judgment, these people are to be found in heaven. These are saved people, people who have arrived and stand in judgment then against those who have kept Jesus at an arm's length, have kept God at an arm's length. And for whatever reason, maybe because they've been hardened by pride or because they've sought to negotiate a deal with God, but whatever, they have not embraced him with faith. You think of the reason why people would hear the word of God and choose not to obey, not to give of themselves. That is where the distance lies. And here the sign has been given and the truth has been spoken in all honesty. And faith has now been focused on Jesus 
Christ the Lord. And so in verse 32, Jesus goes further and indicates that this now requires an act of personal responsibility. It's now in your hands. Listen to what he says in verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hitting or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. And your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eyes are good, your whole body is also full of light. But when they're bad, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. It's up to you. It is up to you. It is up to you. Therefore, however, if your whole body is full of light, no part of it will be dark. It will become completely lighted as when the light of the lamp shines on you. Now on your sermon outline, I have this as the critical matter of personal responsibility. And let me break it down here. The lamp here is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, and he shines through the pages of the Gospels, and nothing is hidden. It is all in the open. There is nothing secret about him. You don't have to go through any special initiation, like my grandson is going to do, any special initiation to learn anything new about Jesus, because the Word is an open book there for you to read and to take to heart. The lamp is Jesus Christ. And what you see is what you get when you look at him. And who you see is what he is. He is the light. And the eye, well, is the lamp of your body. In the Hebrew mind, the eye was the organ that focused all of life's commitments and determined life's directions. You did that with your eyes. It is with your eyes that you would determine what would enter into your mind and capture your imagination and form your convictions. It was with your eyes. And you can choose where you will look for the answers to life. As Jesus indicates, that you can choose to look into the darkness in order to chart your course and to pursue your issues and to adopt a lifestyle that would in fact prove itself to be evil and in the end consuming you so much so that your whole body would be filled with darkness. Or you can choose to fix your eyes on Jesus. And in looking to him and looking to the light find that your life begins to be penetrated and illumined with the blessing of life but it is up to you where you will look. I like this illustration. I love this illustration given by Jesus because it means that our relationship with Jesus Christ is something that is intelligent and honest and is profound. Relationship with Jesus Christ is not just found out of some emotional moment. It is, in fact, a matter of a clear-eyed decision that comes to life made alive. And it opens you up to almost like a window for heaven to shine within you. Verse 39, If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined. Luke 11, 36, Some of you are on the edge of that experience right now. The lights are about to turn on because you have made your decision to look to Jesus. 
Let me share with you a story of one who took that route, route, to light. Chuck Colson, some of you may, Charles Colson, may have enjoyed his writings. He, he, in the process of his writings, described the journey of his friend, G. Gordon Liddy, one of the, um, one of the co-conspirators that ended up going to prison. And that name sounds, may sound familiar. G. Gordon Liddy was one of the Watergate figures, a White House aide, former FBI agent, who went to prison tough and unrepentant of his crimes. He, he was one of those hard-bitten, oh, blood-sucking pagans. He, he, he was a student of the German philosopher Nietzsche. And, 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 and one time he was asked by David Letterman uh, when he was released from prison, an interesting question. He said, what happens when we die? And Liddy just showed the character of his heart by saying, we are for, food for the worms and that's all. That was G. Gordon Liddy. That was an impromptu comment, but it was one that created a great deep sense of inner unease, even as he made that comment to David Letterman, and he didn't know why. You see, during his prison term, his wife had been befriended by a Bible study. And when all the fuss of his relief had calmed down, she invited him to join her. And his response to her was, I'm an agnostic, but I'll go because I'm interested in the Bible, period. Please do not try to convert me. I do not want to be bothered. Now, as Colson writes the story, listen very carefully to what happens. Liddy, uh, you see, felt no compelling need for God in his life. But when he saw the example of his Christian friends and then of his wife, he thought, if they are persuaded by the correctness of this, maybe I should take another look. And so he started thinking about God. By definition, he thought, God is infinite, and by definition, we are finite, he reasoned. And so it is contrary uh, contrary to the rules of logic that a finite being would be able to comprehend the infinite, so there has to be some sort of communication. That infinite being is going to have to tell me because I will never be able to comprehend that myself. And the next step in his process was then to find the communication, and the light went off in his head, he says. A light, a light, a light. That's what this Bible is all about, Liddy. Liddy concluded, it's not merely a historical record, but it's God's means of communicating with finite man, the Word of God. But then, he thought, it would be impossible for a finite being to be worthy of the infinite. So there must not only be communication, but something more. So, said Liddy, you you have God sending down his Son to do two things, to win for you all of that which we cannot win for ourselves, and then to continue the communication. Many people, said Gordon Liddy, experience a rush of emotion in conversion, and yet for him there came a rush of reason. He realized Christ was who he claimed to be, and with that, G. Gordon Liddy gave his life to Jesus Christ and became what he had one time feared he would become, a Christian. Since then, Colson wrote, the man who entitled his own biography, Will, (laughs) has said, now the hardest thing I have to do every single day is to decide what is God's will rather than what is my will. What does Jesus want, not what does Gordon want? 
And so the prayer that I say most frequently is, God, first of all, please tell me what you want. Continue the communication. And second, give me the strength to do what I know you want, what is your will, rather than my own. I have almost 57 years of history of doing what I want, what my will wants, and I have to break out of that habit in trying to do your will, so send me the Spirit for the power to be obedient to you. (laughs) What's keeping you back? Where are you going to turn your eye to find life? What are you prepared to do in order to be able to, to be blessed? Jesus made an invitation. Blessed are those who hear the word, the word of God, and obey. What does that mean for you? God knows. And the answer to that question begins with you simply opening your heart and saying, I will be yours. Bless me with your presence and your wisdom and your guidance. I will follow you. It's a matter of life and death, my friends. And now is the time for you to decide. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, even as I call you by that familiar name, it seems to roll from my lips, and yet, Lord, carries with it all of the intensity of profound theology. You are heavenly the infinite one, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one Lord who created me, the one who created each and every one of us here. And you've, yet you've not done it in such a way that, that you would be so distant from us that we would never know how to fulfill your purpose in our creation. You have become a heavenly father. One who has chosen to visit us through your son, Jesus Christ, and to take us into your heart through Jesus Christ, uh, to welcome us as your children through Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, in following Jesus, turning in our will away from ourselves and willfully now turning to you. Lord, I pray that you would hear us even as we pray that you would strengthen us in that turning. That, Lord, you would fix our eyes on you and you alone. And that, Lord, in seeing you, Lord, in hearing you, and, Lord, in knowing you through your word, we might grow in obedience to you and follow harder after you and, Lord, draw closer to you with the actions that, Lord, are in obedience to your claim in our lives. So we give ourselves to you this day in the wonderful and the powerful and in the loving name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.